Good morning. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Colossians. We continue uh, to go through this great epistle. Colossians 3, verses 12 to 17. Let's ask God to guide our time. Father God, as we turn to your inspired, inerrant word, we ask, Father, that we would not be hearers of the word only, but doers as well. We ask that you would open up our minds and our hearts to hear your truth, to be transformed by it. Father, you tell us your word will not return void, and we pray that that would be true today and that our hearts would be receptive, our lives would be transformed, and we would know that it was good to be in your house. Guide us, we ask, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Probably like many of you, I've had occasion to be on airplanes a number of times. And travel these days is a bit interesting, is it not? You go to your gate and they change the gate. You're in your terminal and it's even possible they'll change your terminal. They might cancel your flight, or they might delay it. I'm not trying to beat up on those who work for the airlines. It's a tough business, I get that. But it can be inconvenient for a traveler. But for me, there's something much worse than a delayed flight. Have you ever been in the plane, sitting on the tarmac, and then they leave you there for a while? Isn't that a joy? I remember it happening to me a few times, but one I'll share with you. I was in Dallas-Fort Worth. It was about 101 degrees out, and I was in this long tubular thing made of tin called a plane. And we had worked our way out, and the control tower told the pilot that we needed to go off on the side of the tarmac, and, and air conditioning in planes don't work very well on the tarmac. And it's like 101 degrees outside, and it's metal, and it's getting hot. And you feel for the pilot, and you feel for the cabin crew. They have nothing to do with it, but they got to put up with us. And you can imagine that after about 40 minutes, there's several people who need to use the restroom. Well, there's an FAA rule, I understand, that while you're on the tarmac, you are to remain seated with your seat belts buckled in order to leave the aisle free in case of trouble. Well, I'm hearing trouble all around me. (laughs) People wanna go to the restroom. So finally, after about 45 minutes, the cabin crew relent and people go to the restroom. And it's getting hot. I mean, it is getting really hot. People are throwing off clothing, nothing inappropriate, but we are just soaked. We are totally drenched. And so then the FAA has a rule that after two hours, they're going to hand out water. Well, that's not working in Dallas-Fort Worth. So after about an hour, they start handing out bottles of water. And these little bottles, I think they think it's happy hour and that will make people happy. It didn't work. They weren't really all that happy. But after about an hour and a half, our plane 
began to go and we took off. Well, now we are totally drenched and the air conditioning is working. <laughs> and we are all totally frozen. And it's a domestic flight, so they don't have blankets. It was really miserable. Well, I think about that flight, and then I read from one of my mentors, Dr. Howard Hendricks. I kind of think we might have been on the same flight. I'm not sure he's gone to be with the Lord. I can't ask him. But he was on a flight in Dallas-Fort Worth that was on the side for hours or hour and a half, whatever, and it was just really hot. And he recalls this man who was belligerent. There was one of those on my flight as well. And this belligerent man was just really being cruel and inappropriate to the cabin crew. And there was this gal. She was so composed. She worked for the airlines and she kind of controlled him. And she did it with an incredible graciousness. That same gal seemed to be on my flight. Maybe we were on the same one. I don't know. And a way that Dr. Howard Hendricks tells it is that after the flight got up in the air and he had chance, he said to the gal, he said, man, what I saw today was amazing. Can I have your first and last name? I want to write a letter of commendation to American Airlines on your behalf. And she said, thanks, that's great. But although I work for American Airlines, my boss is Jesus Christ. And what had she done? She had put on the wardrobe of a Christ follower. And she was far more concerned with how Jesus viewed her than even we the passengers or her employer, American Airlines. And we look at that and we see that and we say, yeah, that's the way it ought to be. And I'm sure for many of you, that's the way it is. Filled with the spirit of Christ, putting on the wardrobe of Christ, putting off the things that God desires us to put off. If you've been here the last three weeks, the two weeks prior in verses five to nine, five one week, six the next, 11 things we ought to put off because of our relationship with Christ. 11 characteristics that God does not desire in your life or in mine. And today we're going to have the wardrobe of the saints, what we ought to put on. And the same advice I gave the last two weeks is the advice I want to give today. 11 things to put off. Oh, some of you can handle four or five. I can handle one. I know I need work in 11, but I can handle one. And so what I believe God wants me to do is memorize some scriptures in the area of the one. Bring the one area up to the Lord on a regular basis. Ask him to work on the one. And when I have some victory on the one, I can go to number two. I think that's the same thing today. When we put on the characteristics of a saint, we're going to have a half a dozen. That's too much for me. I'm a one guy. I know some of you are three or four gallon guys. I'm a one. I would recommend you find one or two or three and ask God to put off what is ungodly and to put on what is godly. Maybe one and one. Well, let's read about the characteristics of a saint. I want to pick up in Colossians 3. Let's read verses 12 to 17. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, 
kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, get rid of the word if, one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these things put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, Jeff, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God, the Father, through him. One of our taglines around here is taking the next step in one's relationship to Jesus Christ. Man, we've been given three weeks. The passage preaches itself. Take these 11 characteristics, put them off. Take these half a dozen characteristics, put them on. Take the next step in one's relationship with Jesus Christ. Put on the wardrobe of the saints. Would you and I begin, if you know Jesus, he gives three characteristics or three kind of rubrics that he has for us. We are chosen ones, we are holy, and we are beloved. I think it would be appropriate if I had preached an entire sermon on chosen ones, an entire sermon on holy, an entire sermon on beloved. That would be appropriate, but it's not what we're going to do. But I want to camp on chosen ones just for a moment. Chosen ones, what does that mean? It means election. It means predestination. It's found all over scripture. We can't deny that it's there, but we've got to figure out exactly what it means. Let me read to us from Ephesians 1 verses 4 and 5. It says this. Even as he, God, chose us in him, in Jesus, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Clearly, the text tells us that before the foundation of the world, before my mother conceived me, before I existed, before you existed, God chose me, he predestined me, he made me a chosen one. Talk about love, talk about an immense love before I even existed, before anyone knew I existed. He knew about me and he chose me. He redeemed me through the shed blood of Christ, which at that point was a future event. I don't know what you want to do with that. But it's clear what it means. God chose me not because I'm a swell guy. What does it say? According to his own purpose. I would have chose me because I'm a swell guy. Well, probably not. I wouldn't have chose you either. We wouldn't have chosen one another, really, would we? But God chose us feel loved, feel adored. 
But at the same time, we read about divine election and predestination and God choosing us before the foundation of the world because of his own divine purposes. At the same time, we read that, we read that you and I must choose God. In fact, we're commanded to do so. We're responsible to do so. 1 John 3, 23, and this is his command to believe in the name of Jesus Christ. And so I want to say to you today, have you believed in Jesus Christ? It's your responsibility. It's my responsibility. We are utterly held accountable by God if we do not choose Jesus Christ. Have you rightly, have I rightly recognized that we are sinners Sin is any attitude, action, thought, motive, inactivity, anything outside the will of God. Have we rightly recognized that our sin will keep us from a holy God? And out of love, God became man, the second person of the Trinity. Jesus Christ went to the cross for the wages of sin is death. He died for us. Then he conquered death, rose on the third day. That if we would believe, confess that we are sinners, believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, then we will be saved. For the heart one believes and is justified with the mouth one confesses and is saved. It's a both end. How do I reconcile the fact that I was chosen by God, elected by God, predestined by God before the foundation of the world, before I was conceived, before anyone ever thought of me, God thought of me, And he elected me, and yet I am utterly, completely, totally responsible to choose God. How do I reconcile that? I don't know. It's above my pay grade. If you don't have a theological box for the mysteries of God, you're going to be shipwrecked over and over. I'll be shipwrecked over and over in our lives. How do we explain the Trinity? How is God three and one? That's not the math any of us learned. Our four-dimensional math cannot handle the Trinity. It can't. God is three, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and God is one and has always been and always will be. How do we explain that Jesus has the hypostatic union? He is fully God and fully man. That's like a fully too many, right? (laughs) And it's not just that we stack his divinity and on top of it, he put his humanity It is the perfect intermingling, no separation possible. He is today, Acts 1.11, still fully God and fully man. And he always will be. And that's a fully too many. It's a mystery too great for us to understand. How does divine election and human responsibility work? I don't know. Above my pay grade. Find a smarter pastor. I don't know. I have no idea how this works, but I know it's true. And I know the implications. The implication is that you, I, need to make sure that we have truly believed in Christ. You can't go on the coattails of mom and dad. You, I, we need to believe, truly believe in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And then the implications. God loves us. We are the object of his rapt attention. Feeling depressed and discouraged this morning? If you are a child of Jesus, you're a child of the king. And if God is for us, who can be against us? 
And if God is for us, we can face any difficulty, any trial, any tribulation. Because neither death nor life, nor things present nor things to come, nor principalities or powers or anything in this dark world can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. He is for you if he elected you and you believed in Christ. And if he is for you, he gives you these titles. You are chosen. You are holy. The imputation of Christ's righteousness covers us. And we are covered by the blood of the lamb. That's what we sang actually in the tradition service earlier this morning. The very earliest service. That we are covered by the blood of the lamb. We are chosen ones. We are holy. We are blessed. You know that these three characteristics, these three rubrics, God gave to Israel. So what he called his chosen people, he now calls believers. And it's not a replacement of one to the other. Israel may be one of the most secular nations in the world, and in fact it is. 90% of Israel today is agnostic or atheistic. Nine out of ten. That's a fact. But it isn't always going to be that way. If Romans 9, 10, and 11 is true, it's not going to be that way. In the words of Paul, many, a multitude of Jews will be regrafted into the family of God, and they will again be called chosen ones, holy and blessed. And if you know Christ... Today, you, I, we are called chosen ones, holy and blessed. And if that is true of us, God has called us to put on the characteristics, the clothing of the saints. And so the wardrobe of Jesus' followers starts with a compassionate heart in verse 12. What's a compassionate heart? It's an inconvenienced heart. It is never convenient to be compassionate. If you and I wait until it's convenient to be compassionate in the lives of our family, our friends, our coworkers, our neighbors, we will never be compassionate. Part of the wardrobe of the saints is to be inconvenienced for the sake of Christ. To love God enough and to love man enough, the first and the second greatest commandment, to be inconvenienced. To go and visit a shut-in, to call someone who's lonely, to send a note to someone who's hurt. To be a part of Feed My Starving Children. We did it last year. We're going to do it again November 3 and 4. I don't remember the numbers, but maybe like sixty or $80,000 of Food is going to be donated and packed. I don't know if that's the right number. I'm not really good at that. But you can be a part of it. Compassion is helping individuals who cannot fully help themselves. And we are called to have compassionate hearts to reach out to those who need a touch, who need to see a Jesus follower, a Christ follower, living out his or her faith. The sex is, second is kindness. 
It's Christotes. That's how I remember the word. It sounds like Christ. Etymologically, I don't think they're actually related, but Christ is incredibly kind. And kind is to put others first. It's a guy named Trench. He's a koine, that's biblical Greek scholar. And he tells me something I know nothing about. He tells me that this word kindness was used in making wine 2,000 years ago. And I'm not a wine drinker. Actually, I'm not a drinker at all. But what he tells me is this, that when you make wine 2,000 years ago, if you drink new wine, it's harsh. It's bitter. What you have to do is allow it to ferment over time and to age, and it smooths out and becomes something quite consumable. That's kindness. That's what God wants to do in your life and in my life. The longer we walk with Christ, the more we mature with Christ, the more we ferment in Christ, the more kind we ought to be. And you say, well, I in my personality. I'm, I'm a rough and tumble. I am what I am, and you get what you get. Well, that's who you were before Christ. But if you know Christ, that's not what God wants in your life or mine. He wants the sharp edges, the harshness to be smoothed over, that you and I might be kind. I want to illustrate this with an illustration that may or may not be true. Historians are divided. The two individuals I'll mention have denied it ever took place, but knowing something about both of them, I think it probably did. One guy's opinion. But the playwright George Bernard Shaw sent Winston Churchill, as the story goes, a couple tickets. He said, my play is opening tonight in London. I'm sending you two tickets in the unlikely event you have a friend, bring them. <laughs> nice. In typical Churchill fashion, he responded and said, well, I've got business tonight in the highly unlikely event that your play is good enough for a second night. Send me two tickets tomorrow night. <laughs> I like it. That's guy banter. I kind of like it. About five weeks ago when I wrote this sermon, there was a little bit of guy banter of which I was the fodder. Couldn't believe it. What kind of church is this? <laughs> but there is a guy, okay, his name is Mr. K. Mr. K was greeting out here in the West, and I understand that when Mr. K greeted people, he would say to them, get comfortable, Jeff is preaching, he's long-winded. <laughs> Former friend. <laughs> well, Mr. J... A friend, a real friend, said to me after the service, actually he said to Mr. K and me, he said, that was a really good crowd. And Mr. K said, sure was. Everyone thought Andrew was preaching. Imagine how disappointed they were. <laughs> this is a guy who needs kindness. Pray for this brother to put on the garment of kindness. And I think he's in the audience today. <laughs> that was kind, wasn't it? As we continue in verse 12, we see the third and fourth pieces of the Christian wardrobe are humility, I just lacked it, and meekness. I think humility is one of those words that no age has liked. 
Certainly it wasn't very well received 2,000 years ago in the Roman Empire. They didn't like the word humility. You see, ours isn't the first generation that when someone scores a goal, they, they pound their chest. Ours isn't the first generation that's all about selfies. Ours isn't the first generation that instead of just telling us about how wonderful their vacation was, they, they go a little beyond that and they, they brag about it. Humility is what Jesus is about and it's what he calls us to be about. Let me read from Matthew 11, verse 29. It's a characteristic of Christ. It says this, take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly, I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Humble in heart. That's not telling others what we've done. That's not introducing ourselves with titles and accolades. That's just being a human, just being kind and, and being gentle and gracious, not filled with pride and the like. As I thought about uh, humility, I thought about back when I was in graduate school, I had the opportunity almost every week the last few years to preach. And we would go to different churches, really small churches, country churches, really churches that nobody else would go to. If nobody would go to them, I would go to them because, hey, I needed the practice. And so I remember one particular Sunday, uh, we had taken the offering. It was in those days where they would pass the offering plates. And, and I had been told after the offering, go up and start to preach. So I was up there. And I was just about to speak when a woman stood up and said, I want to tell you in all humility, I just gave $5,000 to the building program. And I'm not telling you that to toot my horn. And I wanted to say toot, toot. I didn't do it. I just wanted to say that. But I thought to myself, whatever reward you might have had has been lost. I know they're only going to put up part of the passage, but I'm actually going to read all of Matthew 6, 1 to 4. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, Sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received the reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. You guys do this so well. So that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Humility. It's that Galatians 1, 10 to 13 thing. It's for an audience of one. That's how we live, for an audience of one. In addition, the wardrobe of the saints includes meekness. Now, I don't know what you think of meekness, but it kind of sounds like weakness to me. I mean, what child grows up and say, when I get to be an adult, I want to be meek? We don't say that. We actually have a phrase, meek as a mouse. In tradition, somebody said chipmunk. I don't know. It was early in the morning, but it took me back because nobody got meek as a mouse. I thought, well, will they get it in the next hour? Well, the next hour's got it. You guys are great. Meek as a mouse. Nobody wants to be a mouse. 
But that's not what the ancients said. They actually said meek as a lion. Who doesn't want to be a lion? I mean, if you're a, a lioness, you're sleek, you're powerful, you're strong. If you're a male lion, you got a heavy beard and you roar. I mean, that's good stuff. Meek as a lion. This word was used for medicine that had great healing effect, but without the harsh side effects. That medicine was called meek. It was very positive and didn't have the negative. Meek was used in the Peloponnesian Wars of the fifth century BC, the Greek wars between Sparta and Athens. There was this officer who wrote to his fiancee, he said, when I come home, I'm bringing a great horse as a gift to you. It's meek. It's the fastest, strongest, most warrior-ready horse in the entire conflict. And he used this word meek. Meek doesn't lack leadership. In fact, meek is all over leadership. It's a leader who doesn't have to get the accolades. It's a leader who doesn't have to get the headlines. It's a leader who thinks of the goal and the team above self. It's part of the wardrobe of the saints. Some of you are so good at meekness. You lead well. And you lead for an audience of one. And you bring your team along. And you have great healing effect without the side effects. Well done. The fifth and sixth wardrobe pieces are patience bearing with one another, and then forgiveness. He ties all of them together. Patience, bearing with one another, and forgiving. That's hard to do. When you hear the word forgiveness, it's very likely that you, I, have somebody in our mind. Somebody comes to our mind, and we say, not that person. That person took me to the cleaners. That person embarrassed me. That person was unfair. Be patient, bear up, forgive. I don't think so. And then we hear this phrase, it's said all the time, I think it's nonsense. Forgive and forget. God can do that, Psalm 103, 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far he removes our sins from us. He throws our sins in the depth of the sea. He can forget, we don't. And let me tell you my conviction about forgiving. I don't think it's a one-time activity. Oh, for the small things, yes, but not for the big. If someone has really wronged you and you really want to forgive, you claim Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And then you say to God, Romans 12, 19 to 21, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I the Lord will repayeth. I'm going to hand it over to you. I'm no longer going to be judge, jury, and executioner. I'm going to trust you to do that, God. And we really mean it. And then we're triggered. We see somebody, we hear a song, we go to a place. The same thing happens again. We're triggered again. And the anger boils within us. And then we, with a lot less strength, say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, maybe. And we claim that verse, and we ask God to again take it from us. And over time, over time, we let go of the wrong, and we begin to forgive. Patience, 
bearing with one another, forgiveness. These are the characteristics, the wardrobe of the saints, and they're hard. To live above with the saints we love, oh, that will be glory. To live below with the people we know, that's another story. It's hard to do. And it's not a one-time thing. And this is one of those areas where we say to the Lord over and over again, help me to forgive. She doesn't deserve it. He doesn't deserve it. But because of my relationship with you, because of the Lord's prayer, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive others. And then verses 14 and 15 in Matthew 6 that follows the Lord's prayer that says essentially, God forgive me to the degree in which I forgive others. Because that is true, Lord help me to forgive. Because I want the forgiveness from you, I need to learn to extend it to others. It's part of the wardrobe of the saints. It's a hard part. And it's one we have to work on over and over and over again. And then we get verse 14, that penultimate characteristic love. I think of that old hymn, they will know we are Christians by our love, by our love. They will know we are Christians by our love. And the word used here is not predominantly an emotion word. It's an action word. If we're going to put on the wardrobe of the saints and we're going to follow the two greatest commandments of Matthew 22, 37 to 40, to love God preeminently and to love man as we love ourselves, it's an action word. It's not a feeling. If I wait to engage until I've got the feeling, I might wait a long, long time. But that's not the word used. The word used is action. The feeling may or may not follow, but because I love God preeminently, and because I want to put on the wardrobe of the saints, I extend love towards others. And verse 15 then says that the peace of God, the peace of Christ, will rule in our hearts. When we begin to put on the wardrobe of the saints, God's peace begins to grow. It starts, though, by knowing Christ. Do you know Jesus, the Prince of Peace? If you don't know the Prince of Peace, you're not going to get that peace that surpasses all understanding to guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus from Philippians 2. You and I are not going to get that. But when we know Christ, and then we grow in Christ, and we let the word of Christ settle in us, and we begin to claim the promises of Christ, God's peace begins to grow in us. I'm going to illustrate this kind of personal for me, but I learned a number of months ago that my grandkids were going to move away. At the end of the month, they're going down to Atlanta. I'm not real happy about this, but it's what's going to happen. And so uh, I believe that my grandkids need me. In fact, I keep telling that to the Lord. He's a little less sure. So for the last like six months, every night at three in the morning, why three in the morning? I'm old. That's why. At three in the morning, I wake up and I say the same things. I say, Lord, you've got this. And then sometimes I go back to bed and sometimes I don't. Lord, you've got this. Because I don't. Lord, you've got this. And slowly, over time, I have a little more peace. Am I happy about it? No. I'm not even a little happy. But I am growing in peace 
because I'm trusting God a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. I would love to tell you I trusted God from the first day, the first moment I heard they were going to leave. You know what I actually said to my wife? We were driving. We were actually in Georgia, and that's where they're moving. I said, honey, we're moving. And she said, yeah, we'll move. That's what I said. We're going to move. And then like 24 hours later, I thought maybe I ought to pray about this. (laughs) I don't know. It kind of got in the way of my life. and, And we realized, no, no. It's good for them to move, and it's right for us to stay. But when we put on the wardrobe of Christ, it's not easy, and it doesn't just happen. But then God gives us a little bit of peace, and a little bit of peace, and a little bit of peace. That's the wardrobe of Christ. And then it concludes that everything has got to be about Jesus. Whatever you do in word or deed... Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father, or as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, so that whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. The wardrobe of the saints. It could be overwhelming. 11 things to put off, verses five to nine, a half a dozen things to put on. It can be overwhelming, verses 12 to 17. Pick one, pick one of each category, ask God to help you, me, put off, ask God to help us put on. Let's grow in the wardrobe of the saints. Let's pray. Father God, uh, like so many passages, easier to talk about than to actually do. But Lord, we don't want to just hear the word, we want to live the word out. We want to be transformed by the word We believe that it is inerrant. We believe that it is inspired. We believe that it is given to us a double-edged sword to equip us. So take your word, apply it to us, change us for your glory and our betterment. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.